Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Traffic Jam. It's Isabel, and I am here with Georgia and some very special guests. Um, If you've been following, you know that January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and so we thought we would end uh, our month of episodes with another interview. And today we have on two former law enforcement agents, Rob Licamera and Rob Kaiser. Let's start with a brief introduction on yourselves. Rob and Rob, do you guys want to tell us a little bit about the kind of work you were involved in when you were active in law enforcement? Yeah, sure. Um, name is Rob Kaiser. I was 30 years law enforcement. Um, I went through all the ranks up to uh, deputy police chief. I spent uh, 15 years in the detective bureau and um, a year on loan, which which happens to be where they kind of send your department, sends you out to another agency. And uh, so I was involved with uh, narcotics. Um, and I, but I, during the course of my uh, 15 years as detective, I did extensive uh, narcotics and prostitution, human trafficking uh, investigations. Um, now I am currently retired, but I am still uh, active, I, I guess you could say, in law enforcement. I'm still involved with uh, the, the town that I live in. I'm an elected official. and I'm also the police commissioner on a, on a local police department here, which has over 100 officers. Rob? Good. I guess I'll take it next. Uh, Rob Lukamara, I served 22 years with the South Hackensack Police. Um, the majority of it was uh, being partners with Rob. I spent the last 15 or 16 years of my career in the Detective Bureau. I also retired as a Deputy Chief over there. Um, I guess basically mm-hmm. my my background is identical to Rob's, um, except for the time frames. Uh, general Patrol, General Investigations, uh, I was primarily... I guess the token undercover for the South Hackensack police. Um, I was on loan also with the Bergen County prosecutor's office for four years in total, where I worked money laundering, um, which was higher end, um, like drug cartel stuff, uh, street level, and I guess advanced um, drug um, distribution and a lot with the uh, organized crime with the prostitution stuff within the County and South Hackensack. I'm retired now, and I I work um, as a director of security for the Fairlawn School District. Thank you both uh, for sharing your background. I know when we had a conversation uh, before today and talking about uh, the work that you both were involved in, it really kind of started off as uh, working prostitution cases, and then you guys came to learn about um, how human trafficking was rooted in those cases as well. So can you talk a little bit about how you learned that there was like a much deeper rooted problem uh, below the surface of these prostitution cases? Yeah, so um, I'll start off, I guess. Um, so, you know, in the area that we worked, um, we had five motels that were located on an interstate highway, which runs from right into uh, New York City. Um so, you know, during the course of uh, being the detective bureau, we started seeing like an influx of um, a lot of Internet ad- Internet ads of uh, for prostitution. Um, and some of the ads would read a certain way that led you to believe that the person was very young, um, I guess, to entice the customer base. So we also would get like a rash of like um, robberies or girls would call and say, uh, I was robbed. So we started to really look into that aspect of the uh, prostitution and where we decided that we were going to kind of set up 
you know, undercover stings and operations. And then we started to do it and just kind of scratched the surface and just thought it was pure prostitution. You know, arrest the girl, prostitute, give her her charges and send her on her way. But then after a while, we started to realize after talking to these girls, they weren't doing this because they enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of these girls, once we started to build a rapport and a relationship with them, started to realize that um, they were being trafficked. Um, and then, you know, from there, we would uh, just work these cases and, you know, interview these girls. And some girls would open up to us. And some girls uh, obviously weren't for the fear of, you know, that being harmed or their family being harmed in another country. Well, another big part was we had, uh, what, at mm -hmm. one point, six go-go bars in our town. Um, yeah. And in our town, we had a, we had a, um, I guess, a township ordinance where all entertainers had to register. So when you worked in town, whether you were a bartender or a, a go-go dancer, you had to come to the police department and register. So we got to know a lot of these girls from coming in, and um, from I, you know, obviously calls at the at the go-go bars too. And we started learning that a lot of these girls were misled into the uh, the position. A lot of them answered ads out in Russia, say, and um, they thought they were coming out here to be like training for a Broadway show or something. And they literally would come off the airplane at JFK, have their passport taken from them, and was basically told, you have to pay $12,000 to get this back. If you try and go astray or um, you don't pay the money, your family's going to be hurt. And uh, I think Rob probably remembers a couple incidents where Girls did, you know, re uh, relay information to us saying that they personally knew girls that took off when they were here because they were scared. It wasn't foreign. And in one case, I, I think the girl's father or her brother had his hand cut off. Um, yeah. So that right there shows the organized crime. And uh, and that, that kind of opened our eyes to like what Rob said. It wasn't lock somebody up, give them a summons, send them on the way, make a stack, clean up the neighborhood. It was... There's a lot more to this, and we we kind of took it to the next level. So, would you say like there was a moment where you or other officers that worked in the same office or area kind of had that epiphany or the 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 aha moment? Like you all said, "Wow, this is a really big issue, and it's probably nationwide, if not worldwide." Was there a significant instance of that? I think I think it was a combination of everything. It was like hearing the stories from these girls because we always like to take it to the next level, whether it was drugs or prostitutes or whatever. What we always wanted to find out how you got here, how you got into this, where did you go wrong? I, and I learned it from Rob because his kids are older than mine, and he used to say the same thing. He wants to know where they went wrong so he could watch his kids, whether it's drugs or whatever. And we used to interview everybody, and you know, it's a mixture of a couple interviews couple you know horrible stories that we heard and we said you know what this is this is bigger than we know and it's happened right under our nose so we took it to the next level yeah i would i would say that um you know when you started working these cases you started to realize like it was almost <laughs> kind of like you ever hear you know the saying like shoveling sand at the beach it's like uh you, you don't feel like you get anywhere because it was happening so much, uh, the prostitution and with these young young people and being forced into it. It was almost like sometimes you got like very discouraged at times too. It almost seemed like not us, but other people didn't care. So we really didn't have many resources uh, to turn to for, for help. 
uh, for like, you know, outside agencies um, because, you know, we were a smaller department, but it didn't seem like it was a big deal. Nobody really seemed outside like our, our on the county level, like our sheriff's department, stuff like that, which is, a, you know, 350 uh, man agency. Like there was no nobody really cared. Um, and I'm, I'm telling the truth. That's just how it was. And Rob could, you know, uh, agree to, with that with me. Like, uh, we really won't get assistance from anybody. And, um, it's, and I see it up at the federal level. We see what's going on on TVs and uh, on television now, and we see how prevalent it is. There's movies being made and, um, it's just not being taken serious. It, it really isn't. And so the, the, when you say, what's your epiphany moment? Yeah. The, the, you know, just sitting back and watching the stuff happen. That was my epiphany moment that like, wow. Nobody really seems to care about this. Like we're just doing our little bit in our little corner of New Jersey here. And this is going on throughout the whole country. And, you know, the number one destination for human trafficking is where United States of America. We have the, we have the, I hate to say it this way, but the customer base is here. And this is where we're coming. The, the girls are not being trafficked to Russia. We're going to be trafficked to China or Brazil. They're being trafficked to the United States. Let's call it like it is. There's a huge problem in this country and very little is being done. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point that you um, outlined. And I actually have a question to build off of that uh, in a little bit. But before I move on to that, I do want to ask when you were interviewing uh, survivors of these trafficking rings, did you notice any trends among the survivors? Like, you know, what were their lifestyles like, uh, their nationalities? Did they speak English? Uh, things like that. Well, I'll touch on on a little bit and then Rob can touch on some, too. Um, at one point, we used to see a big influx of Chinese. Uh, for some reason, they would they would they would advertise Bergen County from our area, local. <laughs> this, that, anything. They weren't local. What we learned was they were all being they were all coming from New York City, from Flushing, Queens. If you're familiar with the, with the with, with Queens, New York, they were being uh, taken from uh, Flushing, Queens into New Jersey to be trafficked. But, you know, prior to that was China. Flushing, Queens was a big syndicate of organized crime with the Chinese. And then they were bringing them over to New Jersey. Uh, and they would, you know, send the girls off into the room, uh, one or two girls, depending on what they were advertising. And um, we, we saw that a lot. We saw that a lot with the Chinese. That was a big, the Chinese, in my opinion, was uh, at one point when, you know, we were working, that it was a big organization, very big organization uh, doing that. And a lot of these girls, um, at first, they would say they didn't speak English, all right? They don't trust law enforcement, all right? Obviously, uh, especially in their countries in China, uh, they don't, they're, they're, they're not trust. So, so when they come here and then they meet us, they think automatically we're like the way communist China is. And we're, we're not that way. Um, but then on the other hand, they come from a communist China where they're being mistreated. And now they're here. They're into organized crime figures hands and they're being trafficked. And now they're being mistreated again. So it was very difficult on um, that aspect for us to even communicate with these people. Even if we got a translator, it was very difficult. They wouldn't they would not talk. They would the Chinese. Um, they did a good job of keeping their lips sealed. I can tell you that. Rob, do you want to add to that? No, I, the majority were Chinese. Um, uh, on the Gogo Bar level, most of them were Russian. Um, and they, a lot of, we started to get Brazilians, remember? We started to get a lot of the Brazilians coming into. 
Yeah, I, I would say the majority was Chinese, but and then you also had, you know, the, the ones that were from the United States that were maybe drug addicts and, you know, they were coaxed into doing this for drugs and, um, you know, they manipulate these girls that I'm taking care of you, your family doesn't want you, and they, they feed them the drugs and they basically enslave them to do this. Um, but I think the, the majority of our numbers were pretty much Chinese, I know. Rob, I think one of the first time, one of the first times um, anybody charged anybody in Bergen County was us. Um, I think it was uh, there was um, I was the undercover. It was a two girl special where mm -hmm. it was like say one hundred and twenty dollars for two girls, and uh, and when the girls came to the room, one girl was uh, older, maybe twenty five or so, but the other one looked like a little kid. And yeah. she, literally, she was like 15 years old and she was terrified. She walked in a room and she was literally shaking. And uh, when they came in, I, I told them, I said, when when they came in to make the arrest, I said, we got to look at this girl. I said, she does not want to be here. And then we did. We found out she had just gotten into the country. I think she was smuggled in that morning and they threw her right out into the yeah. streets. Yeah, so, yeah, I remember that. Yep. So I was just going to say, like, you know, these girls, they don't it's not like, you know, they were on a bus and they got dropped off or they drove their cars to us. They had a driver. They had a guy, guy who was like, you know, what we call them is their uh, they were like an escort or like a pimp. We would call them, you know, not like that typical pimp that you see on TV from back in the 70s. But uh, they had a guy who was their protection guy would pull up with the car. They would make sure everything looked copacetic and then they would let the girl out of the car. And then uh, a lot of times the guy would, sometimes the guy would knock on the door after a couple of minutes. make sure they got the money. They want the money. Yeah. They, the day they wanted to take the money, these guys, and that was their, that was the muscle. And they wanted to make sure that these girls, uh, you know, first of all, that their, their girl got paid. That was number one. And number two, they wanted to make sure that uh, they were doing what they needed to do and uh, they were safe, you know? So, uh, and then, you know, a lot of times when we arrest these girls, we arrest the guy first. We have a takedown team arrest the guy in the car because, you know, he's facilitating, you know, he's, he's transferring a girl over state lines into uh, another state for uh, prostitution. So we would charge him with promoting prostitution and we charge the girl with the pro prostitution. You know, sometimes, you know, you arrest these guys and, you know, we search their cars and they have a handgun. They they have uh, four five six thousand dollars in cash because they're, you know, they're going around to multiple locations throughout the tri-state area, and they're collecting money off of all the girls that are working. So it, it's a big business. Before we get into the investigative process a little deeper, I wanted to go back to that point you mentioned about the interview process and how oftentimes survivors didn't really want to talk to you guys. Did you have any like interview mechanisms to help ease them into a conversation with you, or was it a pretty much dead stop? Uh, we, I mean, listen, we would we would bring them in and we would talk to them and just start off with them and, you know, be very nice with them. And, you know, obviously try to get their information of who they were, get their name. It was virtually almost impossible to get their name. Uh, none of them gave them the, your right name. Um, but, you know, we would offer them something. We would offer them like, would you like something to eat? Could we get you some cup of coffee we just show them that, you know, we, there's there's actually a human element to this us, us you know, as law enforcement, we're not just here just to arrest you. We were trying to build some kind of rapport and find out exactly what's going on with them. And if they needed help, we could provide for them that, you know, the help. Um, didn't see that too often. They didn't see that often because I think at the end of the day with these people, I think it was all about protecting their family. 
because they're when I you know they're being trafficked here. The, the bad guys know who their family is back in these other countries, and I think it was about like you know if I talk to law enforcement, my family's going to pay the price, you know. So it was uh, it was it wasn't easy uh, talking to them. It wasn't easy. We 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 didn't get you know very far. Like like I said with the Asian, nowhere. Definitely so, fear. Definitely fear. The the uh, Russians that we had a little bit, they would open up a little here and there. Uh, and they would tell us like how the how the organization worked and how much money they had to kick back. You know, uh, every ten dollars they made, they had they had to kick back three dollars. You know, stuff like that on the on the uh, the go go end. So no, I think it was backwards. I think it was seven seven and three seven to the, the boss, three to yeah. them. Yeah, it was the lower it's, number. It obviously wasn't a lot of money for them to be making. So what they would have to do if they're working in the go go bar, they get to resort to prostitution. So now they need to make extra money. So that's how it starts. That's how it all starts. It's a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to say but, the least. Yeah, it is. All right. Can you walk us through uh, like a brief uh, description of what the investigation process was like? Did you know you start off with a tip about a potential you know, trafficking organization? Did you have like certain areas that you knew to kind of patrol? Well, yeah, I mean, you, could, you could tell that you you've, you you found all these ads for me. So yeah, so so how it worked was this: like we we would just set up a day or two, or sometimes we do it for a whole week, and I would just troll the internet and I would do all the research on all the sites that I knew these uh, organizations were advertising, and uh, once I found a couple uh, good ones, you would say, mm -hmm. uh, or ones that looked familiar, maybe duplicate ones that we've done before, and you know, no, no, we're good. Trust me. Yeah. yeah, we would. What we do, we first of all, we would secure a hotel room somewhere in the, in the town where we were. We secure a hotel room. Um, we'd make a once I identified our target or subject, I would say, um, I would let Rob know and say, Hey, listen, this is what I have, this is how much they want. We would do a briefing, me and him. We would discuss it amongst with some of the other guys who's going to be the arrest team, who's going to be the undercover, what's going to be the undercover, uh. Um, distress signal, like, for example, if the officer's in the room and something's not right, if there's somebody in maybe hiding in the bathroom that's going to rob our undercover, um, there'd be a distress signal, like, you know, they, they, he would say a certain word and we would know to move in. So we would do a whole briefing amongst us. Uh, we'd make the phone calls. We'd set up in the area. And then um, the the uh, person would come with the girl. And uh, the girl would walk in the room. There would be a, the dialogue between the undercover and the uh, our target, and they would discuss, you know, what what her services were going to be and for how much money. And then once the money exchanged hands, obviously there was never service. So, you know, people don't people think like you know you do undercover, you have to do that. They, there was never that. It's once the money exchanges hands, boom, it's a done deal. Mm -hmm. um, and then we move in to make the arrest. But prior to making the arrest in the room, we'd have one team take down the guy in the car. And then we'd have the take down the you know the girl inside the room and we place them under arrest. Um, but that's you know basically you know how how the our investigation you know started and how it would go. And you know, not always did we always look on the internet for um uh, you know prostitution or trafficking, but we used to see sometimes um we'd have informants. We'd have informants that stay in our motels and they would call us up um that obviously that we used and they would call us and say, Hey, you know, room seven, 
of this such and such a hotel, a lot of traffic going in and out. And it's not drugs because there's a there's a couple of girls in there and a guy comes a couple of times a day, collects. I see what's going on. And, and then we'd get we'd get uh, tips that way, too. Sometimes if we got you know lucky, which was very rarely, very rare, uh, the hotel staff would call us and say something's going on in that room. I don't know what you know, you guys may want to take a look. And then we do a surveillance and we watch. And we take off drivers like a mile down the road, pull them over and say, you know, what's going on? You know, we 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 just saw you come out of that room. And then the guys would uh, tell us, you know, exactly what's going on, because obviously they were scared. So they would tell us and we, you know, a lot of these guys were married. <laughs> so they were scared and they didn't want to be arrested. So they would tell us what's going on and they would be left, left free. But. But that was our typical, those three scenarios, th those were kind of what, what it was. Okay. I'm curious to know, do, um, if you, if you're aware, do the hotels sometimes make profit off of, uh, the prostitution or the human trafficking that occurs and maybe, so sometimes they wouldn't, uh, you know, call you guys. Wouldn't surprise me. Okay. I, I, I don't think we've ever proven a case. Okay. We've. We've got in, we got information before with drug cases where the um, the desk clerk tips somebody off and you know let them know that the cops are watching them. But as far as the prostitutes, the hundred percent, if they knew, mm -hmm. they got a benefit, whether it was sexual or it was money wise. Okay. Yeah, we were, we were never we were never able to ever prove that, but. If I had to be a betting man, I would say yes. They they know exactly what's going on in their hotel. It's their business. Yeah. See, I remember one particular time, and I don't know if Rob remembers this. Uh, I don't know if I don't think Rob. I don't think you were the undercover. Might have been somebody else. Mm -hmm. And we had our undercover in the room with a girl, and we're listening on our Unitel, and the phone rings inside the room, and the girl answers the phone, and the guy at the front desk. No, um, recognized our undercover officer going into the room and told her, be careful with your customer. Yes, that was me. Yeah, okay, so be careful with your customer. Yeah. So we never were able to, the girl told us after we arrested her, mm -hmm. we asked her, what's that, what's that, what was that phone call that you got in the room? And then she told us, the guy at the front desk gave me a heads up that, you know, you were a police officer to be careful with you. So, uh, Yes, to answer that question, yes. But were we able to, able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and get a conviction and a charge? It was very difficult. We tried. We talked to our prosecutors on that, our attorneys, and they were like, ah, it's a really gray area. You know, you're using a prostitute with no credibility to come to court and testify. Like, that's not going to be a good case. So we kind of couldn't charge them. But yes, it's happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, Rob, when you were in your undercover role and you had to convince these people, the girls, their pimps, that you were there as a paying customer, can you talk about if you mentally prepared to do that, how you mentally prepared and how you kept basically a poker face on in front of them? Because that has to be super challenging. Uh, yeah, it's, I'll be honest, every single case I ever did, i Oh, God, I've probably done hundreds of cases between the narcotics and the prostitutes. Everyone, I've always had butterflies in my stomach to the point where I actually asked other seasoned detectives. I'm like, is there something wrong with me? And I said, maybe I'm not cut out for this. They're like, no, if you know, if you're not nervous and you're, you're going to get yourself hurt and you're getting complacent. So I knew I was doing the right thing. And um, basically, 
it's just, I guess it's like a, a fighter before he goes into the ring. We're prepping everything beforehand. And then we're driving down the street with all the cars. And as you're getting closer, you're sweating, you're getting nervous. And, you know, I'm scoping out the area. Usually we use the same rooms at the motel, so I knew the layouts. But when I got there, I'm always looking around because I don't know. They know I'm going to be there with money. I don't know who's supposed to be there. Is there somebody before me? Is there somebody that's going to try robbing me on my way in? Um so they would let me off. I would walk up to the hotel. They would the backup teams would set up, and I would just kind of hang out in the room. Um, one another downfall of doing that work is if you've ever been in an hour hourly rate motel, they're not clean. You can only imagine what I saw in the rooms, and I'm kind of just standing there by the window, looking out, just waiting for these people to come. And you know, and like with this or with the drug dealers, nobody's on time. When they say they're going to be there in 15 minutes, I wind up standing in this room for an hour. So, you know, mentally it's going through my head, like, all right, are they picking people up? Are they getting ready to jack me when they get there? Or every car that came around the corner, I don't know what's going on because I don't have communication with the officers. I could, I have a body wire or whatever I might have, but I don't know what's going on the outside. And then, um, you know, Finally, if a car showed up, then Rob or one of the other guys would call the room if there was enough time and say, hey, this is them probably. And, you know, you could just you could literally feel your heart race as soon as that person's walking to the door, especially when the girl walks up with a, a, one or two guys. And now I'm like, all right, are they here to rob me or what, what are we doing here? So. Yeah. Did you ever have to use that distress signal that was mentioned earlier? uh no fortunately um i two scenarios i remember they one i was a decoy for a robbery uh there was a prostitute robbing people and i was the decoy so i was in the motel room to meet the prostitute and they get robbed and then uh, another case that we did we uh the prostitute was in a room already it was one of the ones that an informant gave us and when i went into the room I was talking to the girl and I heard a guy's voice and luckily they heard it on the body wire. And then they came through the door and the guy, the guy was hiding in the bathroom to rob me during the undercover. So I, I never got robbed almost, but never had to give the distress signal. So I made it yeah. through. <laughs> I remember that case. That was a good case. When I say good case, I mean that one, uh, obviously nobody got hurt, but the guy was hiding in the bathroom um, with the understanding that, you know, his his girl was setting Rob up to rob him. And uh, we we got a statement actually out of them that this was going to be uh, a robbery. And he was, he had a knife, the guy, and he was going to come out and, you know, just hold up Rob, you know, for his money. But once we heard, I remember I used to run the uh, Unitels. So that's the body wire where I can hear everything going on. And once we heard the guy's voice, we heard a third party in the room. You know, we immediately gave the dress single to or, or move in with all our uh, guys to go into the room we took them down which actually was a good case because we prevented a Just robbery off to a couple things yeah yeah so it was uh it was good it was good nobody got hurt and uh, we took a bad guy off the street so when you wrap up these cases then um were you able to witness any you know legal prosecutions of traffickers uh can you maybe identify any difficulties uh, that prosecutors may have in trying these cases? Because I know when we look at just general statistics, you have, you know, let's say here's, you know, a certain number of human trafficking cases, but actual prosecutions tend to be a lot lower 
than, you know, the rate that we're seeing these cases. So why, you know, what are some of those difficulties? I would say probably the big thing is trying, you need a lot to tie somebody into the trafficking end of it. Um, that, that came out, I think a couple of years, maybe three or four years before I left the police department. And that, that was a mandatory, I believe, 25 years. So you, you had to have a rock solid case to charge somebody with that, which, like I said earlier, we, we were the first ones in Burton County to charge anybody with it. And then, like the second in the state, I I only remember doing two cases that we charged them with the the trafficking. Um, as far as the prostitution cases, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure we had a hundred percent conviction rate. I mean, the, yeah, never lost the case. As far as the prostitution end, yeah, we had a hundred percent. It's very difficult that when you go to court with a, you know, tape recording of the transactions that any of these people try to fight it. But going back to the human trafficking, uh what you were just talking about with some of the problems that we had with those cases is that you have to remember that our witnesses are the girls, the girls that are being trafficked. They're the ones that need to be brave. They're the, need, the ones that need to step up and follow through with it. A lot of times they would just be in the wind. They would take off. They didn't want to be involved. They give us a statement. We take statements from them, tape recorded statements on video, great rock solid case. Excellent. You know, we'll keep in touch with you. Tell us where you're going to be. And all of a sudden, you know, the prosecution, the prosecutor's uh, office or um, wants to try the case and the girl's just in the wind. Now she's just a bad, bad witness. She doesn't want to cooperate no more. And then if they end up finding her locating, <laughs> they see that she's been arrested three or four more times after that. Um, and, and the case kind of falls apart. And then these people who are the traffickers or uh you know that facil facilitating the prostitution they kind of they kind of get off with disorderly person's offense which just is a fine mm -hmm. uh so that's where the, that's where there's a breakdown in the system mm -hmm. in order for the human trafficking to work mm -hmm. it has to be like an international thing it has to be like you know the people in brazil the people in mexico the people in russia it's they it, we all got to be on the same page it's got to be an international thing because but as we know, though, look, being realistic, that'll never happen. But yeah, it's big money. There's big money in it. It's a hundred billion dollar industry. I'm sure you watched that movie that that's that's out. But and they talk about it's you know hundred billion dollar year business. Uh, in that movie, they they mention it kind of at the end, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, they. I guess the predictions are. I think right now, you know, the top is the drug trafficking. Second is human trafficking, but people are saying, you know, they're predicting that human trafficking is eventually going to uh, supersede uh, how much you know drug trafficking is bringing in. Crazy. Uh, so, which yeah, is insane. Uh, I was reading an article and it was talking about the issues uh, in terms of prosecuting human trafficking cases, and it mentioned, you know, it's very difficult to have a survivor of human trafficking uh, come to court because they need to be a witness. And it was giving suggestions on ways to kind of bypass needing to have that witness and using things like statements. Do you think that, you know, something like that would be beneficial? Do you think that maybe um, being able to, you know, only use something like a, a witness statement as opposed to having the witness in the room takes away from having to prove that somebody might be guilty? Yeah, yeah, because if you're going to convict somebody on a witness statement, mm -hmm. it would probably be unconstitutional because okay. the, how does defense, 
how did the defense get to cross-examine this person on the stand and, and defend their client? So you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that it sounds good, but I don't think it's I don't think it'd be practical. Yeah. But uh, and, and these these poor girls, mm-hmm. obviously defense attorneys have a job to do, but they get badgered. Yeah. I mean, look, look what they're doing, right? They're gonna make they're gonna make out these girls to not be the victim. They're gonna make them that they were, you know, a willing participant in this prostitution and this is what she does and this is how she makes her money and they're going to paint this picture of her like that this is this is her profession and this is what she likes to do and mm-hmm. you know you, you that's what they're going to do they're going to badger them and that's why these girls they they're not going to put themselves through it yeah that's that's the problem but um yeah interesting yeah no i hadn't thought of it in that kind of perspective before so thank you for that yeah. um all right so I think, you know, we obviously all know that law enforcement, you know, has to see and deal with things that just like your normal everyday person will maybe never witness in their life. And so I'm curious to know about the switch between, you know, work and personal life and, you know, having to switch gears or headspace um, between having, you know, to experience that in work and then going back into your personal life at the end of the day. Um, and you, did you experience burnout from, you know, working these heavy cases? Me personally, I, I never had an issue turning it off. Um, it, it got a little hectic when I was on loan for the four years, cause you were kind of never off. Um, I'm, I'm going back to when cell phones pretty much just came out. It was mostly beepers, but when you were off and you had a drug connection that contacted you, you know, if you're not working, you still had to contact them. So you were never, you were never really off. Um, you know, if you didn't call the drug dealer back or your contact with this whole deal, then they're going to know something's up. You know, drug dealers aren't Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. So, you know, you're always in it. And, you know, that gets tiresome. But um, burnout, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I never. I, I was I, fortunate. I, I didn't, you know. I've yeah. seen a lot of bad stuff, but I just never really took it home. I was always able to leave it back at the police station. Yeah, same with me. I never really experienced the burnout uh, on the job at all. I, I kind of, I really liked my career. I got to be honest with you. Kind of thrived on it, right? Yeah, I kind of thrived on it. There was times I really looked forward to going to work. But you know, when you when you leave work, um, you know, you got to leave it at work because you know. I had a good support mechanism at home, just like Rob, you know, got a you know good family, good children. Uh, so you had a, they, and, and your family has to be supportive of you, too, because if they're not supportive of you and you're and you're and you're doing it and you're taking calls all times of the night and all times of the day and they're and they're not supportive of you, it's going to be a problem. But I think that has a lot to do. with I think your family life, you know, as long as you have that support mechanism there. And plus, you know, once I got off, I had I had outlets like I wasn't, well, you know, one of those guys that just went home and talked about the job and sat on the couch. I, uh, like I coach sports, like, you know, I was very active in my community with all different sports and kids and children. So I kind of like, at times I forgot about what I do. So it was like, was, that was my outlet. That's how I kind of dealt with it. You know? So for me, it was a little different. It was hard because not hard, but you know, when your wife knows you're with prostitutes all day for eight hours, you know, it's, Real difficult, you know. Rob's doing massage cases, so I'd come home all oiled up and everything. I went for six massages today. Met six prostitutes, but 
you know, besides that, it wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rob, great. I have a quick question. Okay. Um, since you worked trafficking, prostitution, and narcotics, did you see any kind of overlap between the organizations, their structure, <laughs> stuff like that? No, nah, personally, I never did. Uh, it was either the end of your independent drug dealer, your gang drug dealers, or like when I was with money laundering, it was cartel level stuff. Um, I never, I never saw any cross between the two of them. I'm sure they probably do run them. I know the gangs run, you know, the, the prostitutes and I know the cartels probably do, but I've never dealt with that. Okay. So what would you guys say was the most rewarding points of your careers? If you had to name one or two. Oof. Rewarding points? Did you just say points? Yeah. Hmm. Uh boy. I got a good one. Go you want to think and I'll tell mine? Yeah, go ahead. We go ahead. um I don't even remember when it was. We were still probably we were still in patrol and um we were very aggressive. And for some reason everybody from the city of Patterson used to come by us because of all our motels and there was a lot of drug dealers in Patterson and we were aggressive cops and uh we were the two of us were searching a car one night and we had two guys out of the car sit on the curb or something and as we were talking i overheard the, the guys say i, I might have said hey rob check this and he said what rob and the guy looks at his buddy he goes oh shit he goes that's rob and rob he's like we got problems and i i, I told him about it i said wow i said we're known in the city of patterson not to mess around here and, and to me, it just sounded, it was pretty good because I was like, you're not going to change the world, but you're trying to do the best you can for your community. And just the fact that the word got out on the streets of Patterson, like if Rob and Rob are working, you know, go elsewhere because you're going to get jammed up. So I thought it was pretty impressive. Nothing major. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I don't know. Rewarding. I mean, there were so many different rewarding things. I can't really speak to one thing. Um, but I do remember one thing. I don't know why it sticks out in my head. I I arrested a guy one time for drugs. And he he didn't look like that typical kind of guy that you would suspect of using narcotics. And got, got him with a good amount. And he was at one of these sleazy hotels. And then uh, arrested him. Very cooperative. Very nice gentleman. And um, came to court a few months later with his lawyer. And he came up to me and he stuck his hand out and he said, I just want to thank you for arresting me, saving my life. So I was kind of like, wow, never really thought that somebody would actually say that after I arrested him, put him in jail and he got out and he said it was an eye opener for me. And uh, I really appreciate what you did. So he was thanking me for arresting him. And um, I guess, you know, like he said, it was an eye opener turn around. So that was like that was kind of rewarding. I felt like, wow, I guess my, you know, by arresting people does work. You know, at, at times where it was very few and far between that you got that. Um, like I always say, um, when you're a cop, 50% of the people love you and the other 50% hate you right off the bat just because of what you stand for, you know, but um, yeah. No, and those definitely sound like, you know, rewarding experiences, something to hopefully, you know, pick you up in, you know, the other times where, you know, you're dealing with the 50% who hate you. Um, oh, yeah. But obviously, you know, 
we thank you guys so much for being on this podcast and for the service, um, your guys' service um, and the work that you do, because it is so important. Um, I have one more question that I want to ask, more so of like a discussion question. And really both of you have um, touched on this point already a little bit. But one of the big things um, that I would say that makes the continuance of human trafficking just very perplexing is the way that it's able to really operate almost in plain sight. I mean, companies let it operate on their site, uh, like in their motels. Uh, They don't always really do anything about it or people don't really notice it um, or are not aware of it. And I know that the topic of sex trafficking is a very uneasy topic to discuss. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier that it just kind of seemed like people didn't really want to do anything about it. Um, But any more thoughts on, you know, if there is an avoidance to this issue, you know, how is it really able to operate in plain sight and, you know, not a whole lot is, you know, done about it. You think about, you know, if a murder were to happen in plain sight, we're doing something about it. This seems to be like one of, you know, the fewer only crimes that can operate in this way. Yeah, I just think I think what the problem is, is it's twofold. One is people just not educated Mm -hmm. on the background with trafficking and prostitution. They're just not. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, which I always used to hear, it's it's a victimless crime. And it's not a prostitute. It's not a victimless crime because they always think when they hear human trafficking, prostitution, they don't realize what the human trafficking actually means. They just think prostitution. And I hear this from law enforcement people that I used to work with and I current law enforcement now. Um, they feel it's a victimless crime and they just are not educated on it. And that's that's what I think it is. And if the state of New Jersey or New York or wherever, you know, I don't know where you guys live, but uh, especially in our area, because it's, uh, listen, we're in the tri-state area. This is, this is like the Mecca. This is gold here. New York, New Jersey, this is gold. Um, but our attorney general's offices or prosecutor's office took an initiative and had these classes and educated police officers and, and, and agents on the whole human trafficking how it originates, what to look for, the cues and the clues. I think it would change the human trafficking in law enforcement. I, I really do. Instead of teaching some of these um, classes and things that they're giving these officers now, which are useless without getting into politics, but we'll stick to the human trafficking. Good <laughs> <laughs> answer. Yeah. So that's that's my answer for that. Thank you. Rob, do you want to add anything? No, I, I agree with him. I think more education has to be done with um, the first responders. I, I just saw an article on um, the the Moms and Security web's um, LinkedIn page, mm-hmm. and there was something on there about that, about first responders being educated, like firefighters or EMTs that go on some of these calls how to recognize that somebody's being, you know, held or trafficked, trafficked, I can't pronounce it right now, but um, it comes down to education. People need to know what they're looking at. And on the law enforcement end, it's not just, you know, you know, bag them, tag them, get it out of the police station. It's take the initiative, go to the next level, try talking, even though they might look hard, you might be able to break them to, you know, talk to you and tell you what's going on. So 
And yep. that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is we're putting it out and hoping people find it, listen, and they learn something about human trafficking. And mm -hmm. I think it's like, great when I, I never heard of anything like this and the mom's insecurity. I didn't know what it was until I came across it. And I said, I would, mm -hmm. I would love to be a part of it, like whatever they needed to help out because I saw firsthand when, like I said earlier, when those girls came into the room, they had the hard look on their face. They were, you know, badasses, if I could say that here. And then when the cops came to the door, you could almost see like a sigh of relief, like, wow, I'm not getting raped. I'm not getting robbed. And, you know, some of them did give us some information. So I saw firsthand what it does to these people. So, yes, I want to be involved if I could. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we're so glad that you guys came on this podcast. Um, and gave us, you know, I think it's very opening to hear from the law enforcement uh, perspective, um, like what it is that you guys saw. Um, and so thank you so much. Yes. For thank thank you for having us. And uh, anytime you need anything, uh, we'll be more than happy to discuss or talk with you guys. For sure. Perfect. Yeah. Um, do you have any last words for the audience before we log off and do you have any social media that you want our audience to find you on because we will link it everywhere okay um you just don't i don't that. i don't have anything like you know is any any just my personal stuff i could probably get that to you at some point i guess send that to you okay. but um listen human trafficking is a serious crime um they are there are hundreds of thousands of victims in the united states um, just look, just look what's going on at the border every day, turn on the television and think about all those small children that are coming over and how many of them are becoming victims every day. And if anybody who says that, no, that's not happening, they got their head in the sand and, uh, wake up. And I think, uh, Isabel said before, which was an unbelievable stat. She said something about, uh, that human trafficking, that the, the money is going to surpass narcotics trafficking, which is amazing to me. Um, since we did both of that and I, just, I know what, uh, how much money in narcotics there is, but, um, if we're selling people in our country and we're turning a blind eye to it, shame on the, uh, federal government and politicians in this country that are not doing more with this, because this is a problem and they're all coming here. Like I said before, they're being trafficked in our country. They're not being trafficked anywhere else. It's all happening here. So hopefully, um, we could continue to work with you guys and uh, maybe this thing can get bigger than ever and we can make an impact and maybe some voices could be heard. That is, that's the goal. That's the hope. Yep. I know it can be like, people say like, oh, you're never going to solve that problem. It's so big. It's like, okay, well, you know, what can we at least do right now to way at it. make it a little bit better um, mm -hmm. the way we look mm -hmm. at it. So, well, thank you both so much uh rob did you have any uh final thoughts uh i basically like what rob said you know and like i said earlier educate okay. uh for law <laughs> enforcement just don't don't stop there push take it take every lead every investigation as far as you can take it um that's it as far as the social media i don't have anything with that uh i have it but you know nothing pertaining to this I do have a safety device that I invented and patented for schools. If I could promote that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. If you get us information. I worked, I worked as a security director, a deputy director for CUNY college in Manhattan for two years. Then I left and I worked in the bail on now for six and a half years. So 
I developed a uh, school safety device, smartsafetydrop.com. It, it's a smart safety drop box to receive items in front of schools instead of open Tupperware bins or just letting people in. It minimizes visitors, which reduces um, risk of something bad happening. So there was nothing like that out there. I was aggravated. So <laughs> I designed it, patented it, and went into manufacturing it. So www.smartsafetydrop.com. That's my promo. Thanks. Perfect. I will right, put that in the good. episode description. <laughs> I yeah, appreciate it, ladies. All right. Okay, yeah, I will. Okay, perfect. Then to our audience, thank you so much for listening uh, to our episode today. Um, and to this interview, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll be back in two weeks. Okay, thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.